Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. Good morning. Good to see you guys again. Um, I, you guys like Christmas movies? Uh, a few of y'all do. Um, I probably, if I had to do top three, here's my top three. You can, you can disagree if you want, but you can be wrong. That's okay. All right. My top three is um, It's a Wonderful Life. That, that's my number one. It's a long one. I forget. Every time I watch it, I forget how long it is, but it's like, then it just sucks me in, man. Once it makes that switch and starts like showing you what his life would have been like, man, it gets me. Um, another one is Elf. Elf. Okay. And then last but not least is Christmas Vacation. All right. All right. That, that's my top three. Like I said, you can, you can be wrong if you disagree. That's okay. Um, I've never seen uh, Christmas or Miracle on 34th Street. Never seen it. Never seen it. It's what? I heard somebody say it's wonderful life. Something. Anyway, but here's the thing. I love Christmas Vacation because it's like, it, I mean, it's over the top, but it's a lot like real life, right? I, I love the scene where they're at the meal and uh, uh, Aunt Bethany's there and, you know, she's the older lady who's, you know, she doesn't have all the cards in her deck, you know what I'm saying? And, and so like she can't hear very well and they ask her to say grace and she's like, grace, she died over 30 years ago, like that. <laughs> And then, and then her husband like leans over and says, the blessing, they want you to say the blessing. <laughs> and she stands up and everybody bows their heads, you know, and then she like goes like this. I pledge allegiance to the flag. <laughs> and then everybody just stands up. Okay, this is what we're doing, all right? But I love that. And, but honestly, it, it's an underrated line of the movie. Because, man, it's just like real life. They're standing out there. They're looking at the Christmas lights. They finally work, right? They finally work. Clark just was so upset because they wouldn't work. They finally work, and then all of a sudden, he puts his arm around the person next to him, and he realizes that it's Cousin Eddie. Cousin Eddie. And he's like, he's like, surprise, Clark, you know, we're here. And he's like, he said, are you surprised? He's like, I wouldn't be more surprised if I woke up with my head sewn to the carpet, you know? <laughs> and I mean, that's like, sometimes you think you've got this plan for Christmas, right? You think you've got this plan for life, and then their life just throws a wrench in your plans. Cousin Eddie shows up. All right, okay, just, this is a little life lesson for you guys. How many of you have a Cousin Eddie in your family? All right. For those of you that say you don't have a cousin Eddie, that means you're a cousin Eddie. <laughs> Just teaching you a little life lesson. Just teaching you a little life lesson. But we all have things in life that just sort of, you know, don't go the way we plan. But here's the deal. Christmas, as, as awesome as it can be, can also be a tough time for a lot of people. We try to talk about this from time to time because we, we try to talk about real things in life. We try not to just glaze over or gloss over and act like when you live a Christian life that everything is always just perfect, that you've always got the right answers, that you always know how to handle situations in life because that's not true. That's not true. We still, as long as Jesus waits and doesn't come back yet, as long as he waits, we still don't have all the answers. We still live by faith. And so that's why we want to talk about the hard things. And for a lot of people, they deal with depression. 
You know, statistics change and statistics can be manipulated. They may not always be right. But many statistics have said, many studies have shown that one in four people struggle with depression. And that's probably a little low compared to what's happened during COVID these past few years. I mean, the world just changed, right? There's just no getting around that. But at least one in four people, 25% of people, struggle with some sort of deep issues in, in their heart and mind and depression. And a lot of times it gets worse what time of year? Christmas. It's just a sad reality. Sometimes it may stem from maybe they're lonely. They don't have family close by or they don't have a good relationship with their family or, you know, for whatever reason, they may feel lonely. Oftentimes it may be grief. You know, they may have lost a loved one at that time of year many years ago or just the fact that they've lost a loved one. Um, you know, especially that first holiday season after losing a loved one. You know, the first Thanksgiving, the first Christmas, it can just really kind of get people down. And then the sad reality is, is the lack of sunlight. That, that's one other thing. And, and there's many other things. But when it just gets gloomy, and I know, you know, we're from North Carolina, and so we don't really even begin to know what it's like to live in a dark, gloomy place. But man, November tough. November's tough. Like Guns N' Roses talked about the cold November rain. Man, it's, it's rough. Like two of y'all know that song evidently. Um, but it just gets tough. And I can tell when there's two or three days of clouds and just, just drear, it really gets into my heart and mind. And, and I know a lot of people are that way. So what do we do? How do we handle these situations? The truth is, is that regardless, no matter what the reasons are, at this time that we talk about hope, and we're talking about Twas the Night Before. That's our series for this month, where we're looking at what life was like before Jesus came, and then maybe what life is like for us sometimes before we allow Jesus to really be the center and Lord of our lives, because we all get off. And today we're talking about Twas the Night Before Hope. Sometimes we feel hopeless, and we feel like the world's merry and bright, but we are not so merry and bright right here, right? Or right here. And we, we try to hide it, maybe. Maybe we retreat from other people. You know, we, we handle it and we cope in different ways. And can I just say this? A lot of guys would probably be reluctant to say that they struggle with depression. And many of the times they can get away with that because they might not handle, we might not handle depression the way maybe uh, a, a woman might. Uh, sometimes a woman can get reserved and quiet inside. And guys, guess what? A lot of times we do it with anger. With guys, it can be anger. If you feel angry and just in kind of on the verge of rage all the time, you might be dealing with some form of discouragement or depression. And that's something we've got to understand is that it, it, it shows itself in many various ways. And there's a song, an old Christmas carol, if you will, that I always, and I, I've talked about this before, so if this is a repeat for you, I'm sorry, but I talk about this Christmas song. When I grew up in a, a traditional church that had the piano and organ, we sang this song on Christmas, and it was, I, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. I absolutely hated that song. Don't judge me. I just did. Okay. I'm just being honest. Um, I hated that song because it, it, the, the melody was something like, I heard the bells on Christmas day, their old familiar carols play. And then you listen to the lyrics and it's like a downer. I mean, it's such a downer. And the melody's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh man, you know, read the room, bro. You know, let's have a different melody. 
And then quite a few years ago now, uh, the, the band uh, Casting Crowns took that song, took the lyrics, which are amazing lyrics, and put a slight, well, a very different melody on it. They played it in a minor key, and I'm telling you, man, I went back as an adult and heard that song, and I was like, wow, that is a song. I mean, those lyrics are just so powerful. And it says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. So we're with you here. You know, this, it fits that first melody really well, that first uh, half of that stanza. But then it says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So that's where the whole doesn't really fit those lyrics, right? And if you've never heard the story, it was originally a poem by a guy who you've probably heard his name before, even if you're not into poetry, but um, Henry, uh, I just completely blanked on his name. I, I know it so well. Um, there you go, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I was afraid of saying it wrong. But Longfellow wrote this poem, and what was going on in his life is his wife had just died in a house fire. He'd lost his wife not too long before. He had gone and tried to fight the fire. He, he had burns over much of his body and almost died himself, and he could not save his wife. And we're in the midst of, of, as a nation, the Civil War, they're at war. He's from Massachusetts. His son had goes into uh, the army to fight, and he is wounded and almost dies. And so in the midst of this, Christmas rolls around, and he's just distraught. He's heartbroken. His family's in a, a mess. He's got five other kids that he's trying to raise by himself, and he writes this poem. You know, there is no peace on earth. And I mean, he was in a nation divided. A lot like our world today, right? And it's easy to feel like there is no peace on earth. And, you know, people mock the song of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And the truth is, is that everyone doesn't love God. A lot of people don't even want to connect Jesus with Christmas. They just don't, they want to make it something else. And life is not always fair. Sometimes it's downright unfair. Am I, am I right? And if anybody could know pain, it was Longfellow. I mean, that's a rough patch, right? And so he writes this song, and much of the weight of discouragement and depression is the feeling that no one understands you and that no one's there for you. As we talked about last week, we said that phrase is that there's oftentimes nothing more powerful than somebody saying, yeah, me too. I understand how you're feeling. I might not have the same struggles, but I understand what it feels like to be alone, what it feels like to be hopeless. And so my hope today is to encourage you just a tiny bit. If you're dealing with discouragement, if you're dealing with depression, if you're dealing with hopelessness, I hope and pray that you'll listen to what God's trying to say to you. You realize that you're not alone. You're not alone. Or if you're close to someone who's struggling, Make them feel and know that they're not alone. You can help and you can keep on loving them through this time. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is it doesn't hide the discouragements. It doesn't hide the, the flaws of some of its heroes, if you will. Even Jesus, who's perfect, struggled with discouragement and maybe even depression. And, and that's where I want us to start. We look at Jesus in the garden 
when he was arrested, right before he went to the cross. And a lot of people would think, Jesus, Jesus didn't struggle like that. There's no way. But listen to what the text says. We don't normally think of Jesus and depression or deep discouragement, but he dealt with it. And so look at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 37. It says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to feel sorrowful and troubled. It was weighing down on him. He knew what he was about to do to go to the cross. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That looks like depression and discouragement to me, doesn't it? You know, he's overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What does he want? He wants somebody to be there. He wants somebody to be beside him. He wants to feel human presence. He wants to feel as if he is not what? Alone. And it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And, you know, I believe he was kind of angry here. He says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. His friends, his closest friends, wouldn't even stay awake for one hour with him. For one hour. He felt utterly alone. And if he didn't have the full depth, you know, I don't understand exactly how, you know, he is God and he is man. You know, he's experiencing life just like we do. You know, he faced all kinds of temptations, but yet was without sin. But he's carrying this burden. And in just a short while, he's going to feel that weight, that spiritual weight of God somehow spiritually turning his back on him while he's on the cross covered in that sin because God cannot be in the presence of sin. And so he's alone now, but it's getting ready to be so much worse. And he knows that. He knows that. He feels rejected. Look at verse 42. It says, he went away a second time after he had said, come on, guys, can't you even stay awake for one hour? And he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He knew that his death was imminent. He knew that he was about to to taste death. And all of us, have some level of fear and worry about death. You know, a lot of us would say, oh, I want to die peacefully in my sleep. I want to die peacefully in my sleep. But Jesus knew how he was going to die, and he knew that it was going to be one of the most, if not the most painful ways in all of history for someone to die. That scourging that he went through before he went to the cross, you know, the 40 lashes minus one, you know, with the cat of nine tails, it's often said that six out of 10 people who suffered that died and didn't make it to the cross. And he survived it. He knew what he was about to go through and he felt alone and he felt rejected. He knew what was coming. Look at verse 43. It says, when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy So he left him and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. It's heavy, right? 
It's heavy. He'd be abandoned by how many of his friends? All of them. All of them are going to run. Maybe it's just temporarily, but man, at your greatest hour of need, you look around and what? Everybody's gone? Have you ever felt that? Or at least felt like that? Like that's what's going on? Even if it wasn't true, when you get discouraged, when you get down, when I get down, I feel like nobody gives a crap. And it feels horrible. And Jesus felt that. Nobody cares. He's abandoned by all of his friends. And to put it in kind of modern terms, he's lacking community. He's lacking companionship. But what made the difference for Jesus? How did he deal with that? And how did he keep saying, yeah, I don't want this to happen this way, but if it's your will, I'm going to do it. Not my will, but your will. How did he do that? I believe that Jesus understood completely that the Father's will and the Father's plan is perfect. But I argue with that a lot. I, you know, God, you're the creator of the universe, but I think I understand better about this little issue. How many of you have, have sort of, you might not have said that. I've never said that, but I've felt that. And actually, I probably said it. <laughs> Let's just be real. I felt like, God, you don't know. I, you just haven't covered this part. <laughs> this is, you know, lucky. I, I've wondered that sometimes I'm going to get hit by lightning, but... I've had those feelings, I've had those fears, I've had that anger. But Jesus understood the Father's will and his plan were perfect. And so he could have hope even when it seemed bleak. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there are two words that are often translated hope. Two words are often translated hope. One is the Hebrew word yahal. And it carries the idea of to wait, to wait. And the other one is kavah, and it's related to the word kav, which is a word for cord, or like, you know, a, a rope, a cord. And it implies the idea of tension of waiting. And so it talks about waiting with tension. Isn't that a good way to describe what waiting for hope to arrive is, or waiting for salvation, or waiting for rescue? It's like this tension, and you feel like you're about to what? break. You're about to pop, right? And it's just this tension. You're stretched. You're stressed. And Jesus is undoubtedly waiting in the tension, but he knew God's purpose would win. He understood that his death was the price for our life, for your life. Say my life. One, two, three. That's what his death did. It purchased your life so you could have life forever. And so this is the embodiment of Romans 8, verse 28. It says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jesus was on, there, on this world for a purpose. And so he knew, okay, I'm going to trust you, Father, because I know that this is your plan. And it might stink right now, but it's for a purpose and it's for a good thing. And so you and I have to trust that God is working in this difficulty, that in this wrestling that he is working, and in the silence when you feel like, God, you're not there, he's there, and he's working the most when things are silent. And I say this from time to time, and forgive me for sounding, you know, like a repetitious person, but I know I forget it, and I bet you do too. God is God, 
and I am not. God is God and you are not. We are not God. And so we have to remind ourselves that we don't understand and we don't see all the pictures or all the ways that things are going to play out. And it's not perfect, but the way that we can get a small glimpse of this is when we think about while our children especially are very young, even as they get older, they don't see all the things that we see. They don't recognize all the things that are going to happen because we've lived more life than them. And we can tell them, okay, look, if you do this, this will be the outcome most likely. And they're like, nope. Nope. You know, if you keep running at that brick wall and don't stop, you're going to bust your nose open. Nope. <laughs> but that's the way that we live as children, but that's the way we live as adults. We're like, okay, I, I, you told me, but I'm still, I don't believe it. i got to learn for myself. And we struggle with that. We have to know that God is God and we are not. So remind yourself of God's past faithfulness and know that it's the promise of future faithfulness. He is batting a thousand Guys, he's batting a thousand. He's always been faithful, even if you don't see the pathway. He always shows up. Sometimes it takes weeks, months, or even years to be able to look back and see, God, here's what I saw you doing through the horrible circumstance that came about because of sin and death in this world, or my sin even. But God, you worked it out as I was called according to your purpose. So focus on the will of God and his wisdom. Just a couple quick things, really quick, before we move on. Try to put yourself in the place of the Israelites as they leave Egypt and start to flee. Can you, can you do that for a second? You remember that story? You know, at first they're like, yeah, they get to leave and they get to loot all the gold and the riches of Egypt. And so they're like, yeah, big time, right? They're big time. And then they get to the Red Sea and they look and they can see off in the distance the Egyptians are coming. What are they probably thinking? You just brought us out. We know what they're thinking. You brought us out here to die. You know, what, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, then God, through Moses, opens up the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry land. And then because of their sin, they wander in the desert. But God is always what? Faithful. He's always showing up. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes because we're stubborn. Sometimes because we make dumb decisions. But he's always faithful, and he always shows up. The will of God and his wisdom are perfect, so focus on that. He's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. Now let's look at the Apostle Paul. He's the author of much of the New Testament, and it's impossible. It's impossible that he could struggle with discouragement and depression, right? I mean, he's a spiritual giant. But we see Paul's thorn in the flesh. That's what we see in Scripture. He was no stranger to battles with discouragement. A lot of his ministry was sent in prison, at least house arrest, if not in actual prison. And that's what a lot of his ministry was. He's writing letters. He's going through difficult times. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, here's what he says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Does that sound familiar to what Jesus is described as just a few moments ago? He said, it was more than we could handle. You ever felt that way? I need to hang out with y'all because evidently y'all got good lives. He was, it was more than they could do. It said, we despaired even of our life itself. And later he shares that something was troubling him in the same letter in 2 Corinthians. 
And whatever it was, it was bad. And people debate and they argue about what it might have been. He calls it a messenger of Satan. This great man of faith prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Look at chapter 12, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. It says, or because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness or in in weakness, excuse me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so we have to learn the lesson that the apostle Paul had to learn, that we have to focus on God's power, not our own, not our own. But what do we do when life gets tough? bootstraps I'm gonna do it and we're like come on I'm gonna fight you devil and we're like this you know remember the whole thing about the 98 pound weakling it's like I've told y'all before about when I was a kid and I got in one of the few fights that I got in I got in fight in second grade and in my mind I got on top of this dude I'm straddling him he's laying on the ground and I'm like it's like MMA you know it was before MMA existed but it was MMA and I guarantee you if you were looking from a distance it's probably like yeah, but I won, but that's all that matters. That's all that matters. But that's what our strength is like, right? <laughs> I, 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 I was a thug. <laughs> Hadn't always been a preacher. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please don't, please don't leave. Please don't leave. But <laughs> that's what our strength is like, right? We think we're so strong, but our strength is just weakness. But praise God, in our weakness, that's when God's power truly shows up. That's when God's power truly shows up. When we, and especially when we admit that we're weak, that's when it's like gas on the fire. When we admit that we're weak, God shows up and takes off and uses his power to show what we can accomplish with him at the reins. Focus on God's power, not your own. When you and I are surrendered in our weakness and admit we need Jesus, then we're able to be used in ways that we can never imagine. If you keep running into that brick wall, you know, we talked about earlier because we laugh at kids, but we do the same thing with our lives and spiritually. When you say, okay, Let me see your way, God. He provides a way to maybe move the wall, or he provides a way through it, or he provides a way over it, a way around it. And we need to trust him, but it only happens when we surrender. When you don't think you can continue, lean on Jesus. Lean on Jesus. When you don't think you can keep up anymore. You know, we think of ourselves as a broken vessel, And Paul kind of uses that illustration here in the letters to the Corinthians. We look and we see a cracked jar, you know, a cracked vase. And we're like, man, I got to cover up this crack. You know, people are going to think I'm useless. People are going to think I'm worthless. But only when we have those cracks can the light shine from the outside, inside out. Those cracks that we have from life and our difficulties actually make us more useful, actually make us more beautiful or more handsome, if you will, guys. 
Because we're more able to be shown for who's inside of us instead of our strength. So God created you for a purpose. It says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he made you in a masterful way with flaws and all. Your, you know, your, what you think of as shortcomings really show his power. So focus, focus on that truth. Last but not least, we look at Elijah. Elijah's gentle whisper. What happens is this is right after one of the greatest spiritual victories that ever really, I would say, took place sort of in the flesh. Elijah's up there, and he's challenging the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and they have the whole uh, sacrifice, and he says, okay, you call on your God, and the one that lights it on fire from heaven, that's the real God. And the, the, the false teachers, they do it, and then they, they dance around. They even cut themselves. No flames, no nothing. And then before it's his turn, he takes it. He has it, what, soaked with Water, And I mean, I don't know about y'all, but number one, it's a drought. There had not been rain forever, so he's just wasting water. And if you want to light something on fire, it's best not to soak it in water first. Another life tip. That's, I won't charge you for that. But he calls out to God and says, God, show up. Boom! And he lights it on fire. And then they go and they destroy those false prophets that were leading the people away. And so Elijah is literally on top of the mountain, right? Mount Carmel. And then he comes off, and Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And it sends him into depression. Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 3. I'm going to try to read part of this as quick as I can. Elijah was a strong man of God and said, no, not today, Satan. No, what does he say there in verse 3? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Sound like depression to you? I have had enough, Lord. You feel like somebody's reading out of your prayer journal? Copying the prayers you've said out loud? He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. He was afraid. He was exhausted. He was hopeless. He wanted to die. The Lord said, go out and say it. Verse 11, we're skipping down a little bit. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. He wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And he says this thing a couple of different times, and let's just be honest and open here. He was mad at God, right? He was mad at God. He's saying like, God, I was the only one who stood up for you on that mountain. And I, I, yeah, there was a little bit of a victory. But, but then when she opened her mouth, what we did, you know, you left me, God. You left me. She's going to kill me. 
And it doesn't show God getting angry. It just says God saying, look, I'm here. I'm here. And I don't always show up in the big ways, in the, in the crazy ways. I show up sometimes in the quiet, still, small voice. Sometimes he shows up in the big ways. But a lot of times, you just got to get quiet and listen to God. You got to stop pointing fingers at God and saying, God, just show me. I don't understand it. I don't know what it means, but just show me and just be open and say, God, it's not about me knowing how to figure it out. It's not my strength. It's your strength in me because I'm weak. So show me. And what does it say that God tells him? He felt useless, felt abandoned, and he felt probably betrayed by God. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, and guess what? Probably you and me have to be reminded that there was still a lot of work left to do for you and for me. There's still a lot of work left to do. God had tasked a sign for Elijah, and if you are feeling discouraged, and you're feeling alone, you're feeling rejected, and you're feeling even betrayed by God, he still got a lot left for you to do. The scripture we just read, Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you need the New Testament reference, there it is. It's the same thing. He's got stuff for you to do, so it's time to say, God, use me. God made you in a masterful way. He created you for you, for works for you and for you alone, things he wants you to do. So you focus on God's purpose for you. But what else did he show him in there? How did he feel most likely, we said? Alone? What does he show him? You're not alone. There are people that you're preparing to come and help you and, and carry on your work, but there are 7,000 people who are still on my side, still on the same side as you. You are not alone. And if you came in here today thinking nobody understands me, nobody cares, nobody, 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 there's a lot of somebodies that care. You just got to be looking for them. You just got to find them. And that's one of the beautiful things that I want to point out. It, it really mirrors and echoes what we talked about last week. But I believe this is something we need to understand, is that you and I need to understand that when we are down and we are discouraged, we're probably not going to get out of it if we just sit and wait for everybody to come to us. Elijah was told to go and to do and to reach and to find these people. Am I right? But what's our first response? What's my first response when I get discouraged? I want to withdraw from everybody else. And I want to keep them at arm's length. And I want to keep them at a distance. But we need to reach out and do what God has called us to do. And he will show up. So what do we do with these truths? How do we make the first step? I want to encourage you to connect with God this Christmas. If you've been around church for a little bit, it's easy to think, oh man, I know this stuff. 
But ask God to help you see the Christmas story in a new way, in a new light, in a fresh light. So read God's word. Read the Christmas story over and over again. Worship with your church family. We've got so many opportunities to come together. We're going to have our Christmas Eve, you know, that morning. The kids are going to do stuff. And that night we're going to do our candlelight service. It's going to be an amazing time. But there's just something about getting quiet and listening for the voice of God. And sometimes you hear the voice of God through the voice of a little child. That gentle whisper. And read God's word in other places like in Psalms because a lot of Psalms were written in heartache. Maybe you just need to see, look, somebody else has been through this. King David, a man after God's own heart, felt the same way that I feel a lot of times. And read the account of Jesus' birth over and over again. Connect with other people this Christmas. Don't allow yourself to say, man, nobody cares about me. I'm just going to withdraw. I'm not going to reach out to anybody because they need to reach out to me first. Connect with other people this Christmas because you need to be reminded you are not alone. You're not alone. As we talked about last week, don't distance yourself further. Reach out and you'll be surprised at how many people actually care. Serve with others this Christmas. We've got plenty of opportunities. We're going to do caroling. I've shared with you guys many times before. Uh, one of the first times that we went as a church family, before we even launched, we did Christmas caroling at that uh, nursing home. And we went in there, and we went by this one particular room, and there was a, a, a resident and his son, who was probably in his mid to late 50s, sitting there, and they were visiting. And we stopped by, and we sang, and we sang and sang. We had the kids up front, you know, and we sang. And all of a sudden, I look, and this man in the bed, the, the resident, he, he just starts smiling. He's just, like, looking at us. We go on about our way, and we're making our way out, and I see the son, the 50-some-year-old son, come like jogging up towards us and say, hey, 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 I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for coming by and singing. He said, I haven't seen my dad smile in years. And we were just singing off key, singing Christmas songs, right? But it's about the love of Jesus, and it's about showing the love of Jesus. And God will show up if you just connect and serve other people this Christmas. Take the focus off yourself. Make cookies for your neighbors. I don't know. Do something. Take a friend over. uh, Invite a friend for coffee or for dinner. Have a family over to your house. and Go caroling with us. Just find ways to serve other people. Take it off of you and put the, the focus on God and other people. And then remember that you were created on purpose for a purpose. The good news of Christmas is still the good news. And as you remember this good news, I want to hopefully let it remind you to bring you to a place of the next couple of verses of that song we started out with. Longfellow wrote, Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then ringing, singing on its way, the world revolves night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that song, it, it, the, the purpose of it comes back around. And he's saying, yeah, nobody seems to love God. Everything seems to be horrible. I lost my wife. I almost lost my son. I feel alone. The world is dark. Everybody hates everybody. But you know what? The world will revolve from night to day. And the bells will still keep ringing. Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still king. So hold on. Celebrate Jesus. Hold up the light. Hold out the light because people need to see it. We need to see it. Other people need to see it. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. You have a purpose. 
You were called to bring glory to God and point people to him. We're called to share peace on earth and goodwill towards men. In 1914, World War I, British and German troops were lined up across a bloody battlefield from one another. And as Christmas Eve and Christmas Day rolled around that year, 1914, soldiers, without discussion from their leaders, decided to temporarily cease fighting. They started singing Christmas carols, English and German at the same time. They got out of their trenches and they exchanged gifts. They shared food with one another and other things that they had there with them. They played football, soccer, right out in the middle of no man's land, a place that normally if you had ventured out into, you'd be dead in a matter of seconds. But they each laid down their arms, their weapons for just a few moments. And in that little section of ground, where many lives had been destroyed, there was peace on earth. I hate to say it, but a day or so later, guess what they went back to doing? Killing each other. But here's what I want you to consider as we wrap this up this morning. Some of you are at war right now. You feel discouraged. You feel alone. You feel like nobody cares. We've talked about it many, many times already this morning. But you are at war. Some of you might be at war with God. Some of you might be at war with somebody in your family. You might feel rejected by a friend. And you were just at this war. And you're like, I'm just not going to give in. Because if I relinquish this control, if I let somebody know how I'm feeling, I'm gonna, that's the little bit of power I got. And so what I'm asking you to do is to say, I'm calling a truce. I'm going to stop fighting. I'm just going to let there be peace. I'm going to let there be silence. And I'm going to wait for God to show up. And so today, here's what I want you to consider. I'm going to just have a seat right here. Sometimes I go over there and not many people go join me all the time. And I might sit here today and I might be all alone. But I'm telling you, this week has been tough for me. I I hate the fact that a lot of times when I'm preaching on a, a certain topic, I kind of get bombarded with it. You know, Jezebel threatened Elijah. I heard a hurtful, mean thing that somebody said about me almost a half a year ago, and I never heard it until this week. I don't think that's a coincidence. It got back to me. And all week long, I felt like I had a Jezebel who was trying to destroy me. And I was like, God, where are you? Where are you? But I have to be reminded that he is working. And that I'm not alone. And so I want you to know that maybe you just need to step out of the trench and say, I'm done fighting for a moment and trust that God will show up in the moment of peace. But here's the beauty about it. Your peace won't go back to war right after. It can be peace forever through Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there's not going to be turmoil. There's not going to be struggles. But in your life, in your relationship with God, there can be peace forever if you surrender it all to him. But you got to tell somebody. You can't continue to be alone. And the enemy will tell you, just go. You can talk about it later, but you know what you probably won't do? Talk about it later. You'll never say anything if you don't say anything today. So I'll be here if you want to come sit with me. You don't even have to say anything. We can just sit. Or we can pray. Or if you don't want to come up to the front, that's fine. You go to somebody today right here and say, I need you to pray for me. I need to be free. So let's sing. And if you need to call a truce, today's the day. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's Sermon Podcast. 
want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.